Welcome to our Doug Lacey's Basement Systems downtown studio, and welcome to this hour of Flames Talk with Vickers. I'm Steinberg, Flames Talk on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcast. So here we are, a little more than 48 hours now since the news came down that Daryl Sutter was out as head coach of the Calgary Flames. So who should the next coach of the Flames be? Or maybe more importantly, Vix, what kind of coach do the Flames need as their next head coach with Daryl no longer behind the bench. And there's a lot to dig into with this one. There's kind of the the whole idea of the actual individual candidates, which we will definitely get into here this hour on the program. But there's also the whole idea of what kind of coach do the Flames need for this group going forward. And when I say this group, I mean this group as assembled now. We don't know what player personnel is going to look like, but... Got a pretty good idea that a good chunk of this roster under contract will be back next year. And I think it's fair to say, safe to say, that they need a different approach. And and I don't know how drastically different or how far away from the approach that Daryl Sutter had you got to go, but they need a different approach or way of messaging compared to what they just had for the last two and a half years and specifically what they had this past season. because got tuned out that's a big reason why we are where we are right now with the flames not having a head coach that to me is is kind of first and foremost a different approach a different way of going about things and a different way of relating to players on this team before we dive real hard into it can we either confirm or deny the rumor that the reason you didn't apply for the gm position is because you're throwing your hat into the head coaching ring you knew something in advance was coming that's why you're you're more targeting the coaching position. Is that no, fair? No, I just I took myself out of both. I, okay. just, I don't feel qualified. The, a few more years. The two words you said to me that struck out, stuck out, not struck out, stuck out the most was the approach and the messaging. Because I don't think the approach necessarily has to be all that different, but certainly the way you deliver the message from the coaching office to the dressing room has to change. That's where the biggest disconnect between Daryl Sutter and the 23-ish players in that dressing room at any given time for the Calgary Flames. That's where it fell apart for me. That's where there were lengthy, lengthy exit interviews between management and players discussing that approach, not that approach, that messaging to the players. You need somebody with a little bit softer touch. You can still have a hard coach, a demanding coach, a whatever the opposite of a player's coach is, as long as the messaging is softer, easier to digest, more communication, not less. I'm okay with having a coach that's a bit hard on players as long as the messaging is delivered the right way. Well, and I think you, and and I want to play a clip from the latest 32 Thoughts podcast, which is out right now wherever you get your podcast, Elliot Friedman and Jeff Merrick. A, A few things really important in getting this hire right because whoever this new coach is clearly needs to be a fit with the core members of this team. And that was, if if you look at the core members right now, Huberdo, Kadri, Lindholm, Backlund, uh, Rasmus Anderson, and, and a few of the other defensemen back there. Um, you probably throw Dylan Dubé into that mix and a couple of others, but the, the, the core members, the leading veterans of this team, that's, that's gotta be a fit. It's gotta be a guy that, the players respond to and a guy that is a better fit with those personalities. And you're dealing with different personalities, but you got to find one that can kind of hit them all. Let's listen to Elliot Friedman. This was on Wednesday's 32 thoughts. It's out now, wherever you get your podcast. One thing that someone told me was that yes, there were players who had harsh words for Sutter, but what I was also told is I think some players also had some strong comments about why they thought some of their teammates could handle it or not handle it. They wouldn't say who, 
they just said that there will be some fallout there. You know, that some of the players who couldn't handle Sutter, they're going to have to be able to handle the next coach, whoever it is. And so I, I thought that was really interesting. You always talk about the pendulum swinging. Yeah. We go from the hard coach, to the player's coach. I assume they're going to look at more of a player's coach this time. But I think there were some players who kind of talked about, well, if you're going to make the change, you better make sure that this player can handle the next guy. So that was Elliot Friedman, a por- portion of his Flames discussion with Jeff Merrick on the latest 32 Thoughts podcast, available now wherever you get your podcasts. That fit with the players is, is uh, and I think, and look, the order is going to be general manager first, then the GM is kind of the gentleman spearheading the coaching search. But I think that when you sit down, whoever the new general manager is, let's just say that for sake of this conversation, it is Wes Gilbertson, who is named Calgary Flames oh, general manager. Like that guy needs more of an ego pump. Oh, I know, I know. But I mean, that's why when, when you think so highly of yourself, you, uh, you know, you, you get to these high positions. We jest. But so let's just say that, okay, GM Gilbertson, first thing that you do when you start calling your players is determine what type, and not just what type of coach do you need, but get some opinions on what type of coach does the group need? What are the important things that this group, in your opinion, needs from a head coach? And start to put together some of the commonalities that you use. Commonality even a word? Uh, but start to, to put together some of the, the similarities or the, the things that are common among all the different conversations. And then you can really start to hone in on some of the exact attributes that you need from your new bench boss. When I think first and foremost, that's got to start with, whether it's a player's coach or a hard, court, hard coach, pardon me, communication has to be key. You're going to have to be able to communicate what your messaging is to that player but you've also got to be able to adapt that messaging depending on who the player is. So if one player responds this way and another player responds that way, you have to find a way to deliver the same message two different ways to those players because very clearly there was a disconnect between Daryl Sutter and certain players of the Calgary Flames. And just listening to the exit interviews, you can tell a guy like Tyler Toffoli responded well to the way that Daryl Sutter delivered his message to him. And on the flip side... We heard comments from Jonathan Huberto. We read comments from Jonathan Huberto. Yeah. The messaging system that Daryl Sutter employed to get his point across to Jonathan Huberto, clearly Jonathan Huberto didn't respond to it. We've heard him say it. We've seen the play. You can look at the stat sheet. So first and foremost, in bringing a new guy in, you need to make sure that he can reach all your players, not just some of your players. Um. So then what about this whole idea? Elliot talks about the pendulum swinging, going from players coach to tough coach, back to players coach. Like, does this coach need to be um, a quote-unquote players coach? Which I think is turned into one of the um, more overly used buzzwords in the NHL today. Because I don't know, like, what is a player's coach? I'm going to play you something in a second that gives a little bit more on that. But do they do they need somebody that is a little bit younger? Do they need somebody that's a little bit more in tune with the player today? Do they need somebody that is going to be, as you talked about, um, is going to be a softer touch? I like the way uh, you put it. Somebody texted in and said, players can push this next coach around is what you're saying. No, no. I don't think, so, th- think that. Like... I think about John Cooper. He's the first guy that you think about as a player's coach. He's been pretty successful. His team tends to respond to him. He's won a pair of Stanley Cups and been to multiple Stanley Cup finals behind the, the lightning bench, and guys respond to him. And he has a good relationship with his players. He's hard on his players at times. He lets his he, he lets ice time do the talking at times. He's benched big names before. He has scratched big names before. He makes difficult lineup decisions, but he also connects and relates with his players, gets the most out of them, tactically uses them the right way. So I don't think a player's coach just has to be your buddy and just has to be, you know. Doesn't hey, have to be I'm, somebody you want to go for beers with after the game. And I mean, maybe you do sometimes, but you also he also commands the type of respect that he's like, okay, yeah, I can relate to this guy. He gets to me, and and we have a good relationship. But also, when he needs to be a little firmer, 
that part of the messaging is listened to too. And I think there have been different coaches over the years in this organization who have struggled with that, whether it be Jeff Ward or Glenn Gullitson. I think when those two guys tried to be a little firmer and lay down the law, I think that's when it was difficult for players to buy in. And just to keep the the conversation on John Cooper in this aspect, I, I imagine John Cooper, I've never been in the room with him. Shocking news. Yes, I know. I imagine he can take the soft touch approach and something tells me he can take that garbage can and throw it 30 feet to make his point. And to me, yes, he can be a player's coach, but he can be hard as well. And I think that, that's, again, that's just on how you deliver your messaging and how you're communicating with your players, but also reading what the situation calls for as well. I don't necessarily think Daryl Sutter used different approaches at different times when it would have called for it. I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that Daryl Sutter was this exact same person every single day, regardless of win or a loss, regardless of what the circumstance called for. And I imagine that can be pretty grating as well. And I imagine that that can contribute to a little bit of a disconnect between the coach's room and the dressing room. Now, if you just look at recent coaching history for the Calgary Flames, it's almost like they flip between players coach that and a hard ass coach. Elliot was talking about, yeah. right? Well, I mean, you go Bob Hartley to Glenn Gullitson to Bill Peters to Jeff Ward to, to Daryl. That's almost like 180, then 180, then 180, then 180, back and forth, so on and so forth. And one of those was forced on them. Yep. And that and that's fair, but their well, option, their choice the, was to go to the, the super soft. It yeah. doesn't change the rotation, if you will, dating back to 2013, 2014 to now, where they've literally just alternated what you would consider to be maybe a soft approach coach versus a hard approach coach. So what is uh like what 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 does being a player's coach mean? I, I thought that this was a really good question from uh, George on the Big Show on Wednesday morning. Uh, they had Bruce Boudreau on, uh, former coach of the Canucks. We all know who Bruce is now with Sportsnet doing some work with us during the 2023 Stanley Cup playoffs. And and George asked, you know, you've been you've been known to be a player's coach in the past. So what does that mean to you? I thought there was uh, there was a really good answer from Bruce Boudreau on Wednesday's edition of the big show, wherever you get your podcast. I listen to players and communicate and it's not necessarily, I've always believed that, uh, you know, the coach is the boss, but at the same time, I mean, players are smart and they have good ideas. I mean, I knew when I was a player that I, I had good ideas if the coach would listen to me and, uh, so, I mean, I think a player's coach listens. And, and in today's world, uh, I think it's not a uh, – the biggest thing about players now, A, they want to know why and uh, why things are happening, why you're doing things, is but the communication has got to be – they want to know you care about them as much. As, and this is, was what I what – I, when you're, I'm talking only about me again. If they want to know if you care about me, then I'll care about you. And uh, that's why I thought it was always important to find out the wives' names, the kids' names, and, and you talk to them every day and see how they're doing. And uh, when they when they know you care about them, they'll go through the wall for you. So that was Bruce Boudreau on the big show earlier Wednesday. Um, and I think that's, that. to me, that's the only thing that I, that, that is really important to me is about the ability for the coach to connect with the players and whether that coach is a hard ass sometimes hard ass never hard ass most of the time whatever the the ability to connect with players is is something that i think is really important and that's where i think daryl struggled i i don't think that that connection was um through the roof, even during the 21-22 season when they had the second best season in franchise history, but they were winning. So Winning cures all. Winning makes it a whole lot easier to deal with maybe not your favorite way of, of being messaged to. Whereas I think John Cooper, and part of this is because he came up with a lot of those players in Tampa in Norfolk, but John Cooper, I think, connects with his guys. And I think has a real... John Cooper seems like a people person. And you you don't have to be a pushover to be a people person who's respected and 
firm. You know what I'm saying? Like there, and somebody else texted in, what about a guy like Rod Brindamore? I think that he's another really good example. I'm not suggesting Rod Brindamore is a candidate in Calgary, no. but somebody like Rod Brindamore and the way he approaches things. You think Rod Brindamore is a pushover? That dude, that Rod the dude bond. is, first of all, You couldn't push him over if you tried. You could not push that guy. Try, try with a semi-truck and see how you do. Um, but Rod Brindamore physically intimidating, but that dude is intense. That guy is dialed 24-7, and yet you talk to guys inside that Hurricanes locker room, he knows how to connect with his players, and that he can be dialed, intense, well-respected, and well-thought-of, and, and people want to listen to him, and when he's firm, you get the message, but he can also be a people person. And I think it's that ability to relate to your guys and still not lose that respect that a it's not like it's easy to find, but B I think that's exactly what you're looking for right now. I don't think Glenn Gullitson was able to do it. Um, and I'm a huge gully fan, but I think when he went into hard coach mode, he got tuned out. In fact, I know that because I've heard it from multiple players who played for him and we all remember the stick throwing incident and all that type of stuff. And you know what? Gully's doing a hell of a job with a pretty good power play for a team playing in the second round right now. And Jeff Ward, same thing. You know, Jeff connected with guys and was great at doing that as an assistant or associate coach. But, you know, remember the after the whole Bill Peters thing, playing music at warm. I think Jeff Ward um, was playing music in practice around. Jeff yes. Ward was exactly what the Flames needed during that transition time during the Bill Peters situation. But when it became his time to truly be the head coach and command that respect as a full-time head coach, I think he struggled when it got to the crack in the whip stage, right? And so it's that balance that I think is super difficult to find sometimes. To circle back to, to Boos Brudro and his comments, again, he referenced communication. I think there's a level of trust building that goes in there. But the thing that he said the most that kind of caught my ear is he players want to know why now. And to me, under a hard-ass coach, a coach that's a non-player's coach, the answer when a player goes and asks why, the answer is because I said so. And you've got to have, as a head coach, you've got to have the ability to manage 23 different personalities. And again, take different approaches to certain types of those personalities. It's not a dictatorship anymore. A head coaching position isn't a dictatorship. Yes, you have the final say on things, but you're entering a partnership with your players. You are with them on the bench, in theory, kind of on the ice and in a certain degree with the systems you're deploying and things like that. So to me, a player's coach doesn't have to be buddy-buddy with every player on the team, and, and that's the only angle they can take and they can't crack the whip. But they've got to have the ability to enforce and reason with the players as to why the approach is what it is as opposed to just, why? Because I said so. Mm -hmm. Read you a few texts at 960-960 in a little bit. Uh, great stuff coming in on the text line, which is open for you as Flames Talk this hour continues. Here on Sportsnet 960, The Phantom, wherever you get your podcasts, what about the style of play? You know, Jonathan Huberto criticized that on Monday in that interview with BPM Sports, and, and I thought it was um, a really fascinating interview um, going back and, and listening and, and doing the best I could um, with it's hard to translate as uh, with French as your second language. It is hard when you're listening on the phone, like it just becomes that much more difficult to pick up. Anywho, he talked about how Daryl's style didn't fit with him. But what about just overall? Like, was Daryl's style of play modern enough in the NHL today? And does a new coach have to be drastically different than the way Daryl wanted them to play? Let's let's forget the way he messaged. Let's let, let, let's let's forget the soft skills approach side of things. What about just the straight up X's and O's? Because I think the I think part of like I think there's a big part of that question that you can answer. Yes, I do think. A lot of the things Daryl wanted this team to do and the tactical things, the way that he wanted this team to play is very much in line with the way teams win in the NHL today. I'll just give you a couple examples. Um, four of the top five regular season possession teams in the NHL are playing in the second round. 
The one team that isn't is Calgary, but four of the top five are Carolina, Florida, New Jersey, Seattle, all playing in round two. Then you throw in Edmonton and Dallas. That six of the top ten possession teams during the regular season are still playing in the playoffs right now. However, here's the other side of it. So I think the shot volume and the time on attack and all that type of stuff, that is a central part of a way that most of the teams that win today have as part of their game. The problem with the Flames is that I felt like there wasn't a whole lot of room to maneuver this year, and there wasn't a whole lot of room for creativity. And and I think the rigidness of the way Daryl had this team play, the actual central concept I think is very, very relevant still today in the NHL, but the rigidness of it is where I think things got stale. And I think part of that comes down to the approach because you're just getting this, this same, like hitting you with a baseball bat, hitting you with a baseball bat at no point are you getting hit with a pillow. It's always with an absolute uh, smack right in the face when said system style, not executed perfectly. And I think that that led to the lack of maneuverability, but it just didn't feel like there was a whole lot of room for anything slightly outside the box. And you look at teams like Florida or teams like Carolina, they spend a lot of time on the attack, but they also spend a lot of time being creative in the offensive zone. And so I think that that to me is the main thing that needs to change. So you can paint a Picasso or you can paint a barn and the Calgary Flames are trying to paint a barn for lack of a better. Yeah. Well, it's not even like, it's like the Flames just painted the barn red sometimes. Whereas a Carolina team, they just as much volume as the Flames, but their volume was better looking. Like, okay, you're painting the barn, but you're painting a nice mural on the barn. Right, because you're you're doing all the smothering things, and you're spending way more time on the attack than the opposition, and you're hemming the teams in down low. But there's less of the shots from everywhere, shot from the side shot. It's more of okay, let's get lots of shots, let's get lots of volume, but let's work to get those shots in in better areas. And I think that's the tweak that we never saw from the Flames this year. So in theory, the system should work if you're deploying the personnel that can execute the vision. I don't know if the Flames, as they were built in 2022-2023, had the right personnel for the system, and the system was never adapted back to the personnel. I mean, you just look at it. It makes sense from just a logical standpoint. If you're controlling possession, if you're generating shots, in theory, you should be generating scoring chances. If you're generating more shots and more scoring chances, that means your opponent has less opportunity to get shots on net and generate chances. But the difference between a a Calgary Flames team and a Carolina Hurricanes team is I would wager that Carolina's shot volume, a lot of it came on second and third chances, whereas the Calgary Flames always seem to be one and done and never firmly established lengthy possession in the offensive zone. It was always shots from the outside, shots from far. I've probably heard it 41 times this year going into the visitor's room post-game. Well, yeah, they throw a lot of shots on net, but they don't... Sometimes it was subtle, sometimes it was very direct. I remember Jay Woodcroft being very direct. Yeah, their game plan is to throw lots of shots on net. How many scoring chances did they have? And so, yeah, in theory, the formula of lots of shots and few shots against should make you a really strong possession team. But the Calgary Flames never, ever got to the lots of chances portion. So Carolina, this is over, uh, thanks to our friends at Natural Stature, Carolina was the number one possession team in the NHL and the number two high danger scoring chances team in the NHL. So their approach definitely correlated. Carolina was the number one shot volume team in terms of Attempts towards the opposition that nobody had more than Carolina at five on five in the regular season. And they were number two in translating those to high dangers. Calgary on the other side, that's that's number one to number two. Calgary was number two in shot volume, just pure attempts towards the net number 15 in slot opportunities. And that that's not the correlation you want, right? New Jersey was number three in shot volume, number one in high dangers. Uh, Florida was number three in shot volume, number four in high dangers. You want that type of correlation where you're in the very same ballpark with the amount of pucks towards the net and the amount of slot chances towards the net. Flames weren't there. And that, to me, is is the 
tactically, systematically, was the biggest issue I think the Flames had this year. A big chunk of what they wanted to do systematically, X's and O's, was strong, but there was it, it was missing an element that unfortunately never got rectified. Part of that, you lose Gaudreau, you lose Kachuk, you lose that line, I get that, but that wasn't the only part of it. No, and there was a lot, it was almost after every loss, it felt like, oh, the Calgary Flames got goalied. But the scoring chances don't align necessarily with that. Yeah, a goalie can make 38 stops. If you're pumping them from the blue line and from the outside, those are low percentage shots, and that's why they're not factoring in to the overall shot or sorry, scoring chances total that the Calgary Flames generated. That wasn't the, I understand the approach, but you didn't have the speed or the guys to get inside to either get second chance opportunities or third chance opportunities, tips, deflections, that sort of thing. A lot of the times and this, I don't uh, have natural stature up in front of me, but a lot of the times, a lot of those attempts felt one and done or a lot of time was spent trying to recapture that puck, regain the possession, and then you just work it right back up to the top, and then automatically it just goes back on net, and you're fighting it again. You're not generating scoring opportunities. You are generating possession in zone time, but you're not translating it into actual yeah. goals, which was, again, that's why I go back to the theory works, but I don't think the personnel was there to execute the system, so it's on the head coach to adapt the system to make sure that it best highlights the strengths of the cast and crew you're working with. Yeah, I just, I never felt like there was enough of an adjustment. And I, look, I mean, this is coming from the guy who's coached all of zero NHL games. And so. pulled his resume out of uh, contention. Yeah, they, I don't know if they were going to look at it seriously to their detriment, but um, yeah, combined, you and I have coached zero NHL games, and we're fully aware of that. But from the outside, that was a problem all year long and a problem that was never truly rectified. Let's read a few texts before we get into some actual names that could be in the mix here. It's a flames talk this hour underway from our Doug Lacey's basement systems, downtown studio. Uh, this says flames don't have the horses to play cute from the outside, nor the grit to go to the front of the net to get dirty. And I don't see a coach changing that. Um, I don't know. Like, I think that they, Elias Lindholm can get into scoring areas. Nazem Kadri can get into scoring areas. They've got Andrew Mangiapane scored 35 goals the year before and scored From most of them. From about eight feet out, exactly. yeah. Exactly. So I, I don't think it is just... Um, I just don't... I, I don't think it is just a personnel thing. I do think there was a certain amount of rigidness with this system and the brand of hockey they wanted to play that was difficult to break out of this year. Um, this has felt to me that Sutter got out coached last year in the playoffs by Jay Woodcroft and never truly adjusted this season at all. That's from Matt and Cotton. Uh, this says, Pat, what were the Flames' high-danger scoring chances ranking? They were 15th at 5-on-5 five five during the regular season. Um, this says, the only system change is uh, shot quality over quantity or just correlate. Lots of shot quality and lots of shot quantity. That's the ideal. And the Flames hit on one of those in a big way and didn't hit on it as much the other way. Um, somebody suggesting, I just want to see if I can find this text, but uh, it, it disappeared on me a little bit. But it was, uh, it was a text about John Cooper and how long he had been in Tampa. And yeah, he'd been in Tampa Nine? for quite some some time. But I mean, and in the organization as well, because he was promoted from within, was he not? He was promoted from within, and his first full season, he got them to the playoffs. He came in midway through one year, and then uh, has been the full time head coach of the Lightning since thirteen fourteen. Who did he replace, if you know off the top of your head? Because it just seems to me like John Cooper is the Tampa Bay Lightning, and it's hard to fathom a coach ahead was, of him. Was it not Guy Boucher? I'm almost positive it was Guy Boucher. Rings a bell. Because Boucher came in, had that great first year. They went to the Eastern Conference Final Game 7 against Boston. Lost, I think, one nothing in Game 7. Bruin, that was the, I think Nathan Horton had the only goal. Good and the Bruins, you. the Bruins won the Stanley Cup that year. Who did they beat again? I always forget. Oh, it's tough to remember. Uh, Cam has confirmed it is Guy Boucher. Uh, so, yeah, he replaced Guy Boucher in season that year. But Thanks, Cam. Since taking over, the Lightning have missed the playoffs once since 13-14. They have been to the Eastern Conference Final on five occasions, the Stanley Cup Final on, sorry, six occasions, and the Stanley Cup Final on four occasions. 
That's a guy, and and it's not like John Cooper was able to just get buy-in because he came up with Braden Point and um and and some of the other younger players on that team, Kalorn and Hedman and all that type of stuff. It ain't just that because I don't see a problem with some of the veterans they've brought in. It's not like Corey. There's Perry not a lot of roster turnover. It's not like they've been rolling the same team for a decade. Yeah, it's not like and it's not like Corey Perry looks at that guy and says, Who's this guy? We're the same age. I'm not listening to this guy. Are you know. starting to hint at what the Calgary Flames should be looking for if we're talking about a... Age, by the way. I mean, Corey Perry's got to be getting up there. Cooper's in his 50s. Perry's in his He 30s. looks good for 50. Let's give him that. He does. Um, the, what else we got here at 969.60? Um, this says... Uh, there's a few more that I wanted. There was the one about Rod Brindamore that I wanted to read, but we got to that one. What about someone like Brindamore? Again, John Cooper's a great example. Rod Brindamore's a great example. Um, there's just, there are certain guys in this league that have that ability to be firm, that command respect and can also connect with players very, very well. And, and I think Daryl Sutter commands respect, especially immediately because of what he's done, because of the impact he has on the way a team plays, but the inability to connect with guys long-term is what eventually drove him out in Los Angeles and, and what was the undoing here. And it, it happens with every coach, but Rod Brindamore has been the head coach in Carolina for a while now, and that ain't changing anytime soon. And I don't think John Cooper's going anywhere anytime soon just because they lost in Game 7 to Toronto this year. Was it Game 7 or Game 6? Whatever. Game 6. Game 6. Just because they lost to Toronto in the playoffs this year doesn't mean that they're going to go away and and they're going to make a change with Cooper. So, yeah, I uh, let's get into some actual names of candidates because I don't think John Cooper or Rod Brindamore are coming here. This uh, this is from Elliot Friedman again on the latest Thirty Two Thoughts podcast. I know there's there's been a lot of talk about Mitch Love, who's done a great job this year with the Wranglers, and there's going to be a number of those players in Calgary next year. I know they felt very strongly about Ryan Huska. Uh, they're one of their current assistant coaches, although that's always a hard thing to do. But someone said to me that nobody unlocked Huberto like Andrew Burnett did, and Calgary would be wise to at least have that conversation. So there are three names connected by Elliot to the Flames. Ryan Huska, Mitch Love, and Andrew Burnett. Two internal, one external. Let's start with Huska. It doesn't always work. In fact, I would suggest more often than not, it doesn't work going, promoting an assistant from a prior regime, especially at coach. I mean, I think Jeff Ward was the perfect example of a guy that didn't necessarily work as Bill Peters' associate, now going to Bill Peters' replacement. But I think Huska is different. I, I think Huska is a guy that, right now is very well respected inside that room has come up with a lot of the guys yes. in the organization going back to his time as the coach in Adirondack and Stockton. And this is why, why I think Huska is a really intriguing option. There's kind of like a number of bullet points. He's one at every level. First of all, as a coach, He's been a high-end coach in the Western League. He's been a high-end coach in the American League. And now he's been an assistant for, what, seven seasons or whatever it is in the NHL. So he's had success and been effective at all different levels. He was runner-up to Derek Lalonde in Detroit as their new head coach. So mm -hmm. he's got he's well thought of around the league. He's played at a high level, and and I think that sometimes can be something that tunes people out or doesn't command that respect. He's paid his dues, and I think is a guy that can be firm but also relates with guys, and that's one of the things, if you've ever spent a single second talking with Ryan Huska, you know that he can connect with people, that he is he, he communicates well, but I also think he can be firm when it needs to when he needs to be firm. I don't know. I just think there's a lot of check marks on the Ryan Huska box. And, and, and in this case, I don't think hiring internally is all that bad. If we're talking about communication and being able to connect with players, Ryan Huska has that. You don't become a three-time Western Hockey League champion without being able to learn how to connect with your players. 
And those are some of the hardest players to connect to 16 to 19 and 20 year olds. I remember what I was like, I wasn't playing high level hockey at that age, but the ability for a coach to connect to his players at that age, and then to do it again at the American hockey league level. And now he's doing it again as a member of an assistant coach. And he's had got a couple of stints with hockey Canada at the world juniors as an assistant as well. So he's got the WHL resume. He's got the international resume. He's got mm-hmm. the AHL resume. And now he's just looking to fill that out with an NHL resume. To me, he's going to be one of the, he's one of the guys, one of the first guys you go to as the new GM and get a feel for him. Cause chances are, I mean, there is a chance that the next general manager of the Calgary flames already has a connection with Ryan Huska. There's a chance, maybe not, but he's one of the first doors I'm knocking on to be perfectly honest. What about Mitch Love? Is now the time to go that direction with Mitch, who has had nothing but success? Um, as and I, I also wanted to throw out before we go down the Mitch Love route. Um, I think Kirk Muller is a, an interesting conversation as well. The only reason we're not talking about Kirk is because uh, was not mentioned there by Elliot. But Kirk's been a head coach in this league before. Again, I think relates well with players. He's a former high-end player in this league. I think there's there's an interesting conversation to be had about Kirk Muller as well. I think he got interviewed or at the very least got some phone calls this past summer uh, for some of the open coaching vacancies as well. We know that Mitch Love has been a head coach and done well in the Western League. And obviously we know he's done well in his two seasons as a head coach in the American League. Is now the time to go right from AHL coach to NHL coach. And having spoken to Mitch on a weekly basis for two years now, I have got nothing but respect for this guy, and I think he is an asset in the organization. The only thing I worry about is a guy who is in, he's 38 years old. Um, I just, I worry about going from the American League to the NHL and then commanding the respect from veteran players. And that and I'm not saying he couldn't at all because he's the type of guy that that I I think he's a very hard coach, demanding coach, but I also think builds good rapports with his players. That's the only thing I worry about because that has been a problem in in this league for a while is that okay, you're going right from the AHL as a head coach to the NHL as a head coach. That's the only thing I would be concerned about, and it's why I wonder. And and maybe it's maybe if you're the Flames, you just feel like Mitch is the type of coach, the the type of guy who commands a room. That doesn't matter. But that would be the only thing I worry about, and that's not even a criticism on Mitch at all. It's more of a comment on the way things work sometimes inside dressing rooms. No, I can see that point, and I think it's a very valid point. At the same time, we've talked a lot about what Dustin Wolf has left to accomplish at the American Hockey League level. A lot of the same sort of narrative can be said for Mitch Love because basically at this point, all he's actually missing on his resume is a Calder Cup championship, which the Calgary Wranglers are in the middle of trying to chase down. Mm-hmm. So say all of a sudden he's able to guide that group of players to an AHL championship. At some point, there's going to be another organ If he's not promoted whether it be the head coaching position, the assistant coach position, whatever it is, other teams are going to come sniffing around and knocking on the door for Mitch Love. He's going to be a valued commodity in NHL coaching circles. That's why I wonder if you don't do the... The natural progression to assistant? Yeah, like maybe see what happens there. Um, That would be the way that I would go about it. Because I do think that you've got a chance of... Mitch's got one year left on his contract, I believe. Ryan Huska's contract... Uh, is expiring as far as we know. The thing with that, though, if an NHL team comes to give him a promotion, the Calgary Flames aren't going to stand in his way and say, no, you've got one year left. Is Mitch, there a, yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Good point. But two, I, two-time AHL Coach of the Year Correct. Now? Two years yeah. in the AHL, two-time AHL Coach of the Year. If you put a list of the top five rising stars behind the bench that aren't currently in the NHL or he'd not be, currently a, a head coach, yeah. he's certainly one of them. But I think there's a way you can keep both. I think we kind of just detailed it a little bit. Um... And finally, the other name mentioned there is Andrew Burnett, and I get it. I mean, you're talking about a player who's about to enter year one of the largest contract in Flames franchise history. I think you do need to keep Jonathan Huberdeau in mind when you're selecting your new head coach. I don't think you select the head coach solely for Jonathan, but 
one of the biggest priorities this summer is finding ways to unlock more of him than you got last year. I was literally writing down unlock and then you had to go and say it stealing, just telepathically stealing my lines. We're just, we're in some simpatico. Yeah. Yeah. And I understand the natural look over to Andrew Burnett, because as you mentioned, he is the guy that managed to coach Jonathan Huberto to the most productive season by a left winger in NHL history. To me, it's more than just Jonathan Huberto because there is probably at least a half dozen players, if not more, that had down seasons. The most noticeable, certainly Jonathan Huberto to a lesser degree, Jacob Markstrom. But you need a coach not just for Jonathan Huberto. You need a coach for 23 different guys. Now, I'm not saying that Andrew Burnett can't coach the 23-man roster of the Calgary Flames. I just am going to caution that I don't think you go out and get Jonathan Huberto's coach. Yeah, I agree with that. But I do think now, if he is the best man, if you do all your due diligence and you decide he's the best man for your 23, yeah. then so be it. But I don't go and look who's going to unlock Jonathan Huberto the most. I look at who's going to unlock the potential of the entire group, not just one player. I'm a big brunette fan. I thought it was kind of bunk that he wasn't brought back after winning the president's trophy. Although it looks all right right now, as yeah, Paul Maurice yeah. has them up 1-0 on the Toronto Maple Leafs in round two. But Matthew Kachuk in the Florida Panthers. Yeah, Matthew Kachuk in the Florida Panthers. Um, just want to read this one text from Rob before we um, move on to some other topics this hour. Pat, you just talked about John Cooper, and he was an AHL to NHL coach. He didn't seem to have a problem with the vets. The difference is that John Cooper made that jump with a very young, fledgling Tampa core that he had familiarity with. And, and, well, and didn't little, he coach them to an AHL championship as well a I year prior? So in Norfolk, yeah, I believe so. So that the, the, that's the only significant difference for me. Yeah, he won uh, in in 2011-12, won a championship. So with if the you're Norfolk coming Edmonds. up with a young core that is already you've already proven to them that you've won, it's a little bit different. And on that team, you had uh, you had players like Palat and Tyler Johnson, and you had so, like some really important young players for that team coming up. Um, so I think because it was such a young core, um, that that is part of why I think it worked a little bit better. But not to say it couldn't work with Mitch Love. I think he needs to be a significant candidate. And if you think that what I wondered aloud about isn't an issue, then sure, put him right to the front of the line because you don't want to lose that guy. I know that much. I just wonder if there's a way you can keep Husky and Love. I'd be really curious to see the way this all plays out. It's Pat and Vicks along with you. Uh, we're underway from the Doug Lacey's Basement Systems downtown studio. Do you have cracks in your walls, floors, or ceilings? Visit dlbasementsystems.com for a free estimate. They are all things basementy. Hey, it's Haley Salvian from The Athletic. For a look at the latest on your Calgary Flames and NHL news, go click and subscribe to the Hockey Central 960 podcast. While you're there, please rate and review the show. You're locked on Flames Talk, only on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Well, that was a uh, pretty fun Tuesday night in Dallas. Round two got underway Tuesday in both Toronto and Dallas. A couple of wins for the road team. On the right side, dropping for Larson. Fakes the shot, pulls it back in. Brookstrand blasting. Blocker down. Brookstrand gets his own rebound. Puts it back toward the goal and never got through. Now Seattle scores! Scores! On the far side! It's hammered in off the rebound! Yanni Gord, the overtime hero here in game one. And the Seattle Kraken take a 1-0 series lead after a third period heart attack. They come back and take the lead in the series. These guys don't mess around. Make it five wins for the Seattle Kraken in the 2023 playoffs. They are relentless and they... They know how to take a punch, or how about four, four? of them from Joe Pavelski? Uh, how, how about that return to the Dallas lineup? Um, but you know what? Kraken finally getting some goaltending. They continue to find ways to score. Um, here they are, up 1-0 on the Dallas Stars, and they survive Joe Pavelski's four-goal outing. And just seeing Joe on the bench... He was like, come on, what more do I have to do here? How much longer do I have to carry you guys on my back? And uh, Dallas coach Pete DeBoer said this, epic, epic return. 
shame we wasted it and didn't win. That's on our group because he more than did his part. Yeah, I think it's fair to say Joe Pavelski's four goals in game one, he did his part. The rest, yes. maybe not so much. I'm very curious about this series because I liked what I saw to Jake Ottinger in the first round. I liked what I saw in Jake out of Jake Ottinger in the first round against the Calgary Flames a year ago. But you're right. Seattle is finally getting some goaltending. They didn't really get it during the regular season. No. It was going to be a huge question mark going into the Stanley Cup playoffs. Here we go. And Wait. they've got the scoring depth to complement the goaltending. There isn't just one line to shut down with the Seattle Kraken. They've got depth scoring just littered throughout their lineup, and nobody's going to like significantly overwhelm you. But it's just like death by a thousand cuts for the Seattle Kraken. Somehow Seattle made it to the playoffs despite the 30th ranked team goaltending in the NHL. Only Vancouver and San Jose. They had, had worse, worse goaltending, goaltending than Calgary to put that into perspective. Yeah. Calgary was in the 20s at least. Yeah. Seattle 30th ranked with a team save percentage of 886. Because they gave up like four shots season. a game. Their system, you don't want to talk about possession metrics and things like that. Their shot suppression was through off through. I remember every time we had to do best bets, you're like, I'm not taking anybody playing Seattle because yeah, you don't, they don't get give a up lot shots. of shots on Seattle. But like the 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 next the old like they they were the worst goaltending of the 16 teams that made the playoffs. Los Angeles was next. Uh and Los Angeles addressed it by acquiring Corpusala. Yep. So LA was sewered by Peterson and Quick. In the early stages, they finally got Copley to stabilize and then went and acquired Corpusalo in the deal that also brought in Gavrikov. But yeah, Seattle is getting decent goaltending now. All of a sudden, uh, a team that was 886 in the regular season is getting like 920, 921 from is what Philip is, yeah. Grubauer. So they're getting some goaltending. You know what this, I don't know, I, I, I'll bounce this off you, but does Seattle not feel like it? I know it's such an easy comparison because... They're both expansion teams, but in so many different ways, they remind me of the Vegas Golden Knights in their first year. This is year two for Seattle. Now five wins into their Stanley Cup playoff debut, but it it reminds me a lot of the Vegas Golden Knights in that they found some goaltending with a veteran that a lot of people wondered if was going to get back to that level. They don't necessarily have, or especially that Vegas team, did not have any superstars at all. They were relentless. They were deep. They came at you in waves. Chips they on their ha- shoulders, yeah. At that point, they didn't have Mark Stone. At that point, they didn't have Jack, Jack Eichel. And yet they made it all the way to, what, game five of the Stanley Cup final? And I'm not saying that's what's going to happen with Seattle, but they do with the way that they are, um, the, the way that they play, the way Hackstall's got them, consistently executing and competing. They don't have that one superstar. Jared McCann reminds me a ton of William Carlson. And he's hurt. I know McCann's hurt right now. It just, they give me a lot of Vegas vibes from, and and year one Vegas vibes. To me, it's very much by committee what they're doing. Oliver Bjorkstrand leads the team. He and Jaden Swartz actually each have three goals. They've only got six players that have multiple goals in these playoffs through eight games. They have 15 different goal scorers. That's depth. That's next man up. That's You can try and take away whichever player you want to take away, whether it's Bjorkstrand, whether it's Schwartz, whether it's Matty Beniers. doesn't matter because the next guy is going to go, okay, well, if you're going to go that way, I'm going to go this way, and we're just going to find a way to roll through it. Like 15 different goal scorers in eight games. And names you might not expect. Jamie Oleksiak, Will Borgen, Brandon Tanev. You run through the list. This really is, and I don't know if so much I, I, I get the same Golden Knights vibes, but I certainly get the underdog, world against us, we don't have elite, elite talent, so we've got to do it together type mentality that the, what were they? Were they the Golden Misfits? Is that what they were kind of? Well, there Dubbed was, there in the was first the one. Misfit line of Carlson, Marcheseau, and Smith. Yeah. Um, I don't I, I get a, he even got a coach on his second NHL try. And I guess, was Gerard Gallant on his third team? No, that was his second. Second, I think. No, that was his third team. Wasn't it Columbus, Florida? And then I might be, I might be messing that up. Um, but it was definitely a coach 
on another NHL try. Yeah. As I quickly try to look up Gerard Glenn. I'm trying to remember because he was the one Ubered, Ubered away from the yeah, rink. Yeah, it was. Was it, that prior to? So it was Columbus was his first head coaching gig. Yeah. Then Florida. Then, then Vegas. Vegas. This is Hackstall's second head coaching gig. Philadelphia was his first and now Seattle. But uh, And speaking of Vegas, even if you don't agree with me that the, you get those same vibes from them, uh, Seattle. Vegas-Edmonton, long series for you. Game one Wednesday night at T-Mobile Arena. I have no idea anymore in terms of what to expect, in terms of who's going to do what. And certainly, I'm sure the city of Calgary would like it to be short and sweet in Vegas's favor. I'm just curious how Edmonton deals with Vegas versus how they dealt with the Los Angeles Kings and vice versa. Because to me, they're two very different teams. And I'm I'm actually most curious about the subplot of Jack Eichel versus Connor McDavid, the number one in 2015 versus the number two. Now, certainly, is it wrong that I don't care about that? I I care as a as a draft guy, and I, it's you know what? If Vegas wins, it doesn't mean that Jack Eichel's better than Connor McDavid. I just like the storyline of number one versus number two. One guy had 66 points this year, and one guy had 153. But for me, every time Jack Eichel is in the same building as Connor McDavid, he's, he's a little grumpy and he's a little owly because he knows he's second best in that draft class. He knows he's not number one, whether it be on the board in 2015 or now. I just, I, I like guys that have grudges. Now, I will say that it was 66 and 67. So Eichel was on pace for his second best statistical season in the NHL, but did I'm a not draft play guy. A full year. So I'm always going to go back to one versus two. I don't Even Taylor versus Tyler. Let's go. Eichel will never be Bobby Ryan though, will he? Like he won't. No, he's already surpassed that. But. But. <laughs> McDavid, there's a bit of a gap there between. Okay, well, I'm not looking at every number one. And I'm not doing Nico Heischer and Nolan Patrick. That's a pretty big gap as well. He's a pretty good player. Definitely Left friend here, right Kako is. Oh no, those that was Hughes Kako that we actually just saw yeah. with the New Jersey Devils trumping the New York Rangers. Pat Vickers, along with you from the Doug Lacey's Basement Systems downtown studios. They're your local experts for basement waterproofing, sump pumps, crawl spaces, foundation repair, and radon mitigation. They're all things basementy. Visit dlbasementsystemscalgary.com.